Let me just reiterate the welcome of earlier on. I was saying to Tom before we started the service that uh, I spent many a time traveling to Texas to Perkins School of Theology in a former life and uh, wandering up and down Selectman and, uh, and traveling throughout, throughout uh, various parts of Texas. It's a big place. <laughs> How you ever found each other, I've no idea, but you're, you're very welcome. And it's lovely to think of that connection in the worldwide Wesleyan family. Now, I want tonight to focus a little on that reading from Romans. Partly focusing upon the text itself, but particularly noting some special words that St. Paul uses here. Because, after all, Lent is a time when more than ever we should let texts of Scripture speak to us before we speak about them. But also because I wanted to identify a couple of themes which are important to those of us who stand in the Wesleyan tradition. The book of Romans uh, is held together a bit like a daisy chain with a series of therefores. Before the ancients decided to chop up our scriptures into chapters and verses, which I'm very glad they did, I'm not against doing that, Paul had already created the main sections of the letter. And you can see the sections linguistically in Greek quite clearly. Romans is different from a lot of New Testament letters in as much as there's a strong group of reasons why Romans is probably a generic letter written to several churches in the ancient world rather than just the Christians in Rome. And it may well be that we've got the ending that we have because this version was going to Rome. But there's plenty of bits of text throughout the ancient world to show that something very similar to the book of Romans was written here, there, and everywhere. So what we have is not a common letter in the sense that you dismiss it and say, oh, he sent it to everybody in his dog. What you've got is probably some primary Christian themes that Paul thought were appropriate to be sent to every Christian community he could think of. And they're all held together by these series of therefores. Let me illustrate for you a, a, a few key words. Therefore is the first key word. Therefore, what does it mean? Well, in light of this, this now follows, or this now is the consequence. It's a hinge word. It's a bit like a marriage service for those who are privileged to either take them or go through them. Uh, this prayer, that element, this symbolic action takes place and then you reach a point in the marriage service where the priest or whoever is leading the marriage service says something like this, I therefore pronounce you husband and wife. In other words, it summarizes everything that's gone up to that point and says, in the light of all this, this is now the case. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, says Paul at this hinge point that we call chapter 5. I want you to note the special word, are in that sentence, A-R-E. 
It's not a very big word, it's not usually a very important word, but it's important in this sentence. Because what it makes clear, whether you're in the Greek or the English, is the present tense. What Paul is saying is that our justification, our being put rightness with God because of God's actions, is in the present tense. Paul is absolutely convinced that those who are in Christ are, says he wrecking the place, are justified. They have been made righteous. This isn't a kind of airy-fairy statement. It's not a thing of philosophical logic. The, for Paul, the simple, wonderful fact is that they and we have been received and accepted without reservation by God. And he's convinced that this is a total thing, not a partial thing. It's an unconditional thing rather than a conditional thing. It's a complete thing rather than an incomplete thing. That we have been justified and now are justified is the platform for living out the Christian life in belief that God has received us. Now, as with most things Christian, God offers before God demands. God demonstrates love towards us before inviting us to love. God acts decisively to end the power of sin in us before God asks us to be holy. God is merciful to us, requiring us to be merciful. Generous to us, before insisting that we become generous people, etc., etc., etc. God promises the Holy Spirit to us before expecting us to live in the Spirit's power. That's just the way God is. An educational study that came out some years ago on the development of younger children found that a healthy upbringing and a balanced childhood was dependent on umpteen different things. It was one of those, uh, one of those uh, scientific surveys that had taken eight, eight years to complete and asked you know, tens of thousands of people. And when you read it, three quarters of it was, you thought, well, I knew that instinctively. I'm not surprised that that's there. But one of the more surprising things among these standard things was this. The children who had a smiling face awaiting them at the end of the day at the school gate and an arm around the shoulder as they got there or home developed further in all sorts of ways that those who were not blessed with that didn't. God acts first and receives in love. The mental picture, the spiritual picture that Paul is concocting for us time after time after time with the therefores and the ours is, God has done this. You can rely on this. You can live in it. The third word I want to just spend a brief moment on is the word faith. These are all big words, believe me. But the word faith. Our justification takes place by faith, Paul says. Now, besides being one of the great pillars of the Reformation, 
who even begins to understand faith without wading through Calvin's Institutes. Faith is actually very little understood, and the way in which we use faith, some of us quite mature Christians, actually illustrates that we don't actually understand it in the way the scriptures talk about it. You see, we have to keep on realizing that it's not our faith which saves us. It's Christ who saves us, in whom we have faith. Faith is not so much gritting your teeth and striving to create something within yourself, which is why we're so often so far off the mark when we tell people to have faith. Just have a bit of faith. Just pull yourselves up by your boot race. If you had a bit more faith, all this wouldn't be happening to you. That's actually not the use of faith that you see in the New Testament. Martin Luther, who, was, uh, who wrote extensively about faith because as a, a, a poorly man for most of his life, he wrote about it in order to believe it. He was like a, a lot of people. Uh, his life was riven with depression and when he was high, many people think he may have been a manic depressive, when he was high, he believed it and he sang it and he stood for it. But when he was in the doldrums for months on end, he just had to believe what he'd written. But Luther talked about faith in this context, the way I'm talking about it, as that which is given by God and our response to what God's given is faith. He called that passive faith. He didn't mean by passive faith that you, you couldn't be bothered or that it just happened or, or that it wasn't important. It was passive in the sense that it's not our faith that brings about our justification. It's not our faith that brings about our salvation. Faith is, if you like, the vehicle of reception by which sinners such as we receive the incredible gift of being justified by God in Christ. Faith is not the means of our production. We didn't just mysteriously get to a point where we think, gosh, I've got faith, and it's a Tuesday morning, and it's only ten past nine. Acceptance of the gift of God's justification is itself faith in action. It's this gift of God himself, then, that ends our unacceptability before God. Our end is not uh, condemnation. We sang this morning, and can it be, no condemnation now I dread. Incidentally, that's going to be after another, therefore, in chapter 8. But peace with God through Jesus Christ. One more word. It's laden throughout Romans, but in this particular passage it was first mentioned in verse 2. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And the word, another huge word, is grace. Jesus not only brings us to God in peace, mediates, if you like, for us, but brings God's grace near to us. We have access to the grace of God. 
One of the things I love about being in a congregation where there are people from north and south and east and west is that so many of our African brothers and sisters, those who came from Africa in their lifetime or have lived here for one or two generations, if they're talking to you and we say, well, will we see you next week? They'll say, by the grace of God. And if they're recovering from something, we say, I hope you get on well. I will with the grace of God. Now, you can be cynical about this and say, well, it's just a line like, yeah, thanks, or okay, or laugh out loud, or whatever. But at its roots, they're using it absolutely rightly. If the grace of God isn't, then I stand no chance. If grace doesn't work first, then I'm lost. This word grace, that access to grace and not our own strength enables us to live through some of the terrible things that come to our life. If there's one recurring truth that we need to remember in Lent, it's that living this Christian life doesn't absolve us or cause us to escape from any of the things that beset sinful humanity. But the grace of God allows you to live with it in a different context and in a different way. It's not our repentance that leads to grace. Grace came first. And God's grace leads us to repentance. Uh, So if that didn't float your boats as a piece of exposition, I finish with two stories. Because some people understand things differently in story rather than text. The notion of prevenience, pre-before-veni life, is very precious and deeply embedded in Methodist spirituality. This morning we had an infant baptism of the daughter of one of our associate ministers. And we saw enacted before us in that service that Tony took for us this morning for Sophia Grace. Exactly what we're talking about when we talk about prevenient grace. Because before anyone made any promises, those of you who were here this morning after we had the uh, lovely uh, choir um, anthem, Before anybody made any promises, the parents, the godparents they brought along, or the congregation, God's unconditional love had been declared to a baby who can neither speak nor respond in any way. She didn't even splash Tony when he poured water on her. Just as Tony baptizes the child in water in the name of the Holy Spirit, just before that, he said this to the baby. Sophie, uh, for you, Jesus Christ came into the world. For you, he lived and showed God's love. For you, he suffered death on the cross. For you, he triumphed over death, rising to newness of life. For you, he prays at God's right hand, all this for you. Before you could know anything of it. In your baptism, the word of scripture is fulfilled. We love because God first loved us. And it's true of faith, justification, and grace.
Because if therefore and justification and are and peace and grace are the case, through what God in Christ has done once for all, for every one of us, then we never in our lives, whether at infant baptism or the last breath before we go to be with the Lord, or any of the time in between, we never move beyond a place where redemption and restoration and renewal are possible for us. What makes us think, for a moment, that our fallenness, our stupidity, our blindness renders God completely empty of power and plans and purposes. Who do we think we are? The second story with which I close. One of the things that some of you will not know is that one of the nicer things that happened when I came here last September was that I discovered that my office was an office that I visited quite a number of times in the 1980s. But then... It was Donald's office. Donald English had room 306. And Donald was a great mentor as well as being a great Methodist to me. Near the end of his life, as it turned out, because he died quite suddenly, having not recovered from what was a serious but pretty routine operation, which was a shock to a great many people, he was asked to preach at a Methodist convention at which both Tony and I were much involved down the years, though we didn't know one another very well then. It was some months after his beloved wife, Bertha, had died, herself after a long illness, after which Donald was, understandably in some ways, never quite the same. The organizers of the convention, Easter people, had given all the evening preachers not only a passage of scripture to preach from, but a theme. And Donald had been asked to preach on Be Good, using some obscure passage in the book of Numbers, I think. He began in his usual gracious, rather jovial style, thanking everybody and their dog for the role that they'd had in the how wonderful it was to be there, and then said that he always did what he was told, being an obedient Methodist, but on this occasion he didn't think much of the Bible passage, and he wasn't sure he could preach that night from that passage on Be Good. So instead, he wondered if this large congregation of about 2,000 people would allow him to share some experiences. And although a renowned Bible teacher, and no doubt some were rather disappointed that this great man wasn't going to do some exposition in the book of Numbers for them, that's what he did. He seemingly meandered over occasion after occasion a time of missionary service with Bertha in Nigeria in the 1960s, hard ministries in Methodist churches, blessed ministries, and then very personally, and for the only time I ever heard him, he shared what it had been like the previous six or seven months without his lifelong partner, Bertha, his wife. And about each example, he talked about God's goodness. How blessed he was to have served in that place. How blessed he was to have learned things in that place. How wonderful it was that they were sent to do such and such a thing. And suddenly we began to see it. And as he ended the sermon, 
whereas I'm sure some people had just thought he'd made up some stories, he said this. So I don't want to ask you or tell you to be good. That's the wrong question. I want to ask you this. When you realize what God is like, when you see what God has done for us before we ever knew it, when you realize what God is still doing for us day by day, week by week, year by year in our lives, why wouldn't you want to be good? It was a Romans 5 sermon. It was a very Methodist sermon. And the question still stands before us today. When Paul writes Romans, he is not twisting our arms up our back and saying, will you be justified? Will you be forgiven? Will you be filled with grace? He is pointing to the repeated, blessed, wonderful nature of God and saying, all this for you. Now, why wouldn't you? 